Over the course of this long election slog, we've heard from a lot of white people who are really upset. And Donald Trump's candidacy has given them a really powerful platform to voice all of those intense feelings. I'm afraid for the whole country. I think we'll have a, a very big recession. It's been a dark eight years. And I mean a dark eight years. We'll have a flood of immigrants come across the border, flooding our health care system, flooding our education system, flooding our prisons. Uh, you'll see a real downturn in the standard of living you now know as American. I'm afraid for our kids, our grandkids, and everything else. What's coming? I've watched my country go from a place where I felt safe to a very unsafe world. I don't feel safe anymore here. All right, so on this episode of Code Switch, what is going to happen to all that energy after November 8th, which is, of course, only six days from now? It's kind of a moment of truth for America. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shereen Marisol Meraji. And Gene, Mm -hmm. we're freaked out. Right? By all this racist stuff we've been hearing for months now. Can I speak for you? You always do. I mean, <laughs> And we want to know, will this energy, will it just disappear into thin air after the election? Will it fuel huge new culture wars? Will there be civil unrest? Yeah. Or who knows, Gene, maybe something positive will come out of all the negativity. Right. So to that end, what we're trying to do today is speculative. We're trying to see into the future. And we've invited two people onto the podcast to help us figure out what might be coming next. Carol Anderson is a historian at Emory University. She wrote a book called White Rage. She's going to help us by using the past as a guide into the future. Mm -hmm. And Whitney Dow is a filmmaker who runs something called The Whiteness Project. And the easiest thing to say is he talks to white people of all economic backgrounds all over the country about being white today, now. Mm -hmm. And we have to say, all the stuff that we're talking about is really hard to disentangle. It's racism, it's xenophobia, it's fear, it's economic Mm -hmm. insecurity, demographic change, a loss of identity. All that stuff is all in one big pot. It's illegal immigrants from Mexico taking jobs. Oh, yeah. And the really bad ones are rapists, Hmm. Muslim terrorists from Syria coming in as refugees. And Gene, I'm doing your air quotes right now. Stop biting. (laughs) And let's not forget, it's all President Obama's fault. All this political correctness, the federal government forcing people to do things, the fact that we keep bringing up race. Think about how everything is racist now. It's not only... Before, before just, Obama got elected, you really didn't hear much about race, racism or any of that stuff. Uh, he's, he's brought this all to us. I guess my politics is showing a little bit, but that, you know, that's my opinion. I, I think that he, uh, uh, he's done this country more harm in that respect than anybody could. Jean, I went to Montana to talk to people who are upset, to hear firsthand their concerns. Okay. Uh, you just heard Ray and Arlene Hawk. They live in Ravalli County, Montana. It's in western Montana. It's rural, 96% white. Mm. Um, they welcomed me into their home. They made me an Italian soda, uh, you know, with whipped cream. They okay. were super kind and very open about talking about how they are petrified about what's going on in the world. They're scared of terrorism. They're scared they're being left behind. They're scared their American way of life is changing because immigrants, in their minds, refuse to assimilate. Hmm. Um, Here's Arlene again on the subject of Muslim immigrants. Expecting us to conform to their culture rather than they to Americanism. And they look at, um, we need to build their mosque. But on the other hand, we can't even say prayers in our own schools anymore. But yet we can build mosques across the country. And one thing they told me, Gene, is they really hate being called racists. 
Right. I mean, who likes that? Like, yeah. <laughs> but they they hate they hate it, and they feel like they've been called racist, xenophobic, Islamophobic a lot, especially by people like us, you and me, people who they identify as the elite liberal media who live in big cities on the coasts. Here's Ray. If you're thinking that these people in Montana are all racist, you're you're wrong. They're not. All right. So, Shereen, let's grant them the benefit of the doubt here, right? Oh. Ray and Arlene Hawk, Western Montana, are not racist. Um, they made you Italian soda, right? Was it yes. good, by the way? It was delicious. The syrup was with this local berry. It was really good. So, I can't remember the name of the berry. <laughs> okay. It sounds like they were nice to you. They gave you tasty soda. Um, and they're not white nationalists, you know, but there are extreme voices that are, like, all wrapped up in this conversation, too. Oh, for sure. If we're sticking with Montana. A 28-year-old from Columbia Falls who was active in white nationalist organizations in the past is now running for a seat in Montana's State House of Representatives. Huh. Yeah. His name is Taylor Rose. His, of course. <laughs> of course his name is Taylor. Of course. First of all, I have a Puerto Rican cousin named Taylor, so let's not make you, okay <laughs> about the name Taylor. <laughs> you know, just like the name Taylor and who gets called Taylor is very complicated, so is all of this stuff. Obviously, right, you know, thank you. <laughs> there are people in Montana who are really open to change, like Mary Poole, a woman that I talked to when I was out there. She's been helping clear the way for Syrian refugees to come to Missoula, Montana. And she says, yeah, she's definitely heard from people in Montana like Ray and Arlene Mm -hmm. who are really freaked out by refugees coming into the state, freaked out by all the demographic change that's going on in America. But she's learned not to dismiss their concerns or make fun of them. I mean, if you stand back and look at it and you take the white out of it and, and you just say there are people that are fearing for loss of their culture, you can almost understand that, oh, yeah, I guess... I mean, I can I can see that. I don't believe in white supremacy and I don't agree with those views. But I can understand on a human level that that is a scary thing. So now that we've messed this up and complicated all this, where do we go now, Jean? Where do we go after November 8th with all of this energy and all of this stuff that we're grappling with? Those are great questions, Sheree. <laughs> That's why we should turn to our guests, uh, Carol Anderson and Whitney Dow. Welcome to Code Switch. Thank, Thank you. you so much. So what do you think about what you just heard? Did anything particular jump out at you? I mean, I think the level of fear and the fact that the fear is disconnected from, it's both disconnected from reality and it's connected to reality. Like, the country is changing. There's no question the country's changing. The demographics of the country are changing. And I think that, you know, one of the things about being white is that we're on this strange trajectory, this trajectory of knowledge of, like, understanding that the narrative we've always told about ourselves and the narrative that we know actually to be true of America and white America is kind of in conflict with each other. And so I think that they're sort of grappling with this sense, this real sense of loss. Can you explain what those those two competing narratives are? That that narrative that we are a force for good in the world, that America is a force for good in the world, we're always on the right side of things, and that um, our very founding was based on this idea of equality, things that we've really internalized. And yet when we start looking at our history, that's been disproven over and over and over again. You know, 20 years ago, you could always say, like, you know, this idea of whiteness equals goodness. And... You're now having to look at all your institutions that make you who you are. I mean, I, I'm the whitest dude on the planet. You can find I'm from Cambridge, Massachusetts. My name is Whitney Dow. I have little round glasses and blue eyes, and I summered on Nantucket. 
and <laughs> summer on Nantucket. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's and now that's just like I, extra it, credit. <laughs> exactly. And yet now all the institutions that I really identify with and how I think of myself, I have to look at the history of those institutions, understand how I relate to them and call into question their inherent fairness and goodness. Carol, what did you hear? I heard um, a different kind of history. I heard the kind of history, as Whitney was saying, in this kind of sense of whites built this nation. Whites mm. made everything good in this nation. So what happens with this kind of demographic change, this inevitable demographic change, which I see as them the fighting this rear guard action, trying to stop this from happening, is the sense that as African-Americans and as um, Latinx folk are, are saying, we are citizens. We have rights. We have the right to access to resources in this nation. That is absolutely troubling. It is earth-shaking because Hmm. in that call for access to resources is also this questioning of the kinds of foundational narratives in the United States. Um, And so you get this ahistorical piece where they say, we didn't hear race before Obama. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking... (laughs) 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 Really? (laughs) Um, Wow. Yes, we did hear race. And after the civil rights movement where race was all over the place, that race was in dog whistle language. We heard race. We heard law and order. So when the woman says, you know, I just don't feel safe anymore. That's a dog whistle. When she's talking about the changing demographics in America make her feel unsafe, it is when all of these black and brown people are now threatening her sanctity. What we know is that that's not the way crime works. So you're getting these kinds of ahistorical narratives and these questions about access to resources all wrapped up in a language of fear that politicians have preyed on for decades. So I'm curious as to what you guys make of when Shireen talked to Ray and Arlene. Um, they're expressing this fear, even as they live in a town that is 96% white. You know, mm-hmm. this, this demographic change is on some level a huge abstraction to them because it's not affecting them directly in any way. And they're not encountering it in their day-to-day lives. I think that has a lot to do with media. And that I think that where the real like change is taken is in the dominant narratives, almost all media that they consume, the television that they watch, the advertisements that they watch. You know, the fact that the NBA and the NCAA pull their championships out of North Carolina because Hmm. of transgender Hmm. bathrooms. So even though they're not affected by it in their day-to-day world, they feel the effects of it through all the media they consume. And I would say that, you know, if you watch any sort of television, it's far more integrated than most people's lives. Yeah, and I would add as well that I think another piece of that that was not articulated but is hanging there is the sense about what happens to my children and my grandchildren's opportunities. And so that becomes part of the fear. When you could count on, for instance, that that job would go to my nephew or to my son because that's the way it's always worked. There's always been that old boys network um, there. And so now all of a sudden when he says, you know, you've got the federal government telling us what to do, you know, saying thou shalt not discriminate. That becomes very troubling when you're concerned about what that next generation is going to be able to access. 
listening to you, listening to all this, do you see rough times ahead? Do you see rough times for this country post-November 8th? There's always been rough times ahead with this country. <laughs> We're always looking and it feels, it always feels pretty rough. As I was listening to them talk, and one of the things I was really thinking about is that people think that it's a division between people of color and, and white people who are racist. But you're also, there's a, what also happens in this conversation is that it divides liberal whites from conservative whites. And what's really interesting about it is it kind of, makes liberal whites feel like it's not their responsibility, that they feel like they're outside of this conversation, that, oh, this is a problem for racist whites, mm. not recognizing that we're all part of the paradigm and we're all affecting the paradigm. And that if you want things to change, if you want to build a more just society, you actually have to take personal action on a day-to-day basis. And so I think it's really interesting that this conversation, it's been really easy for white liberals to stand on the side and have this great boogeyman of Donald Trump to like point at and say, well, this is not us. This is not us. But yes, you know what? Actually, you're connected to him and you're connected to the systems that, they're, that these people are talking about supporting and you're benefiting from those systems as well. And I would say um, looking into the future, one of the things that the Trump campaign has done is in fact caused these liberal whites to go, oh my God, um, to really look into that abyss of what rabid racism looks like. And that sense that This cannot be who we are, particularly given the millions that have voted for Trump. That is so jarring. I mean, it is like an old Aqua Velva commercial back in the day (laughs) where, you know, you get slapped. It's like, boom, boom, thanks. I needed that. I mean, that's where the bracing is. And so I, I see what's happening afterwards is going to be an intense and intense wrestling with what is going to be the future of this nation. And it is an array of folk that are going to be overwhelmingly blacks and Latinos and Native Americans, and then a large, 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 large share of whites who also do not want the nation that has their children yelling, you know, hang the, kill the, because again, that's just not quite the nation, the way that we view ourselves. All right, real quick, we have to take a short break. But when we come back, we're diving into the lessons of history. That's with Carol Anderson. She's the author of White Rage and Whitney Dow. He's a filmmaker who runs The Whiteness Project. Don't go away. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Talkspace, therapy for how we live today. Talkspace provides an affordable, confidential, and convenient way to access unlimited messaging to a dedicated and licensed therapist for a low weekly cost. With Talkspace, you can text, audio message, or video message your therapist as many times as you want. Visit Talkspace.com switch for a special discount off your first month or download the Talkspace app on the Apple or Android app store and use coupon code switch. Hey, before we get back to our conversation with Carol and Whitney, the NPR Politics Podcast is counting down to Election Day with new episodes every day. Mm, skip the cable news hangover and stay caught up with them. They'll have new podcast episodes every afternoon so you'll know what happened and what it all means by the time you get home. Or back from class. Or by the time you finish walking the dog. Whatever your routine, make the NPR Politics Podcast a part of it every day through November 9th because we're all going to wake up and wonder what just happened. Subscribe or listen on the NPR One app. And speaking of 
what's going to happen after the election. That's what we're talking about on our show right now with Carol Anderson and Whitney Dow. So let's get back to it. Yeah. Carol, in your book, you do tick through these places in history where there was great gains, racial progress, and then a backlash. What is the racial progress today? I mean, where is this backlash coming from? What is it in response to? Oh, and I think we heard it beautifully from Ray and Arlene, Obama. Obama's election unleashed white rage all over America. Um, One of the first indications of it, the massive voter suppression laws that arose in state after state after state after state. These Republican legislators looked at who Obama's voters were. He managed to, in that 2008 election, bring 15 million new voters to the polls. Over 2 million of them were African-American. 2 million were Hispanic. 600,000 were Asian-Americans. And also a slew of them, and a huge percentage, were those who made less than $15,000 a year. And you see the legislatures then systematically, just like what North Carolina did, how the Fourth Circuit said they targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision in terms of disfranchisement, in terms of denying them the right to vote as American citizens. So we begin to see this kind of rhetoric where you get a a Congress that their goal is to obstruct, even in the midst of a massive financial crisis, even in the midst of having millions upon millions of American citizens without health care, without health insurance. So even in spite of those kinds of crises, the first thing, the only thing that was on the agenda is how do we discredit this black man? How do we take this black man down? And how do we so move back that sense of achievement that African-Americans felt by putting this man in the White House? Whitney, when you're out there, do you get a sense that people are talking about Obama as sort of an avatar of this demographic change in this way? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny. One of the one of the questions I always ask people is, are Barack Obama black or white? Because one of the things that's really interesting about the project is most people who sit down in front of me have never answered simple questions like, you know, what is it that makes you white? What are the benefits of white? Uh, what are the drawbacks of being white? Uh, do we owe black people anything. Things that are just sort of what I consider sort of basic sort of thought process around being a white person. I always say, well, you know, Barack Obama was raised by a white, he's half white, raised by a white family, goes to white institutions. He lives in the White House. Like, why (laughs) is he white? Why is he black? Now, of course, it's sort of a throwaway question because, you know, identity is really the intersection of how you perceive yourself and how the world perceives you. Mm -hmm. But I've had a lot of people say, well, he chose to be black. He married a black woman. And one of the things that that's always catches me off guard is that I feel like more than Barack Obama, because I think you know you start seeing Barack Obama as the president, and you start seeing his face and all these things. And I still now, when I get that Christmas card or see that Christmas picture, and I see Barack and Michelle and their two daughters, I'm like, holy crap! There's a black first family. Yes. And that. Yes. Still, to me, is disorienting. It catches me off guard every time. And I think for a lot of people trying to process that, it doesn't compute. Why? Why doesn't that compute? Again, I think it's this tension between how we think of ourselves and what we know of ourselves. 
I have uh, some very conservative in-laws, and you know, I just like to give them things. And you know, Christmas, I gave them, you know, without sanctuary one year. And I don't know if you if you <laughs> if you've read that book. Whoa. It's postcards yes. of lynchings, mm-hmm. in the back with the writing on it. And as a white person. Looking at that book, I never look at the black bodies. I look at the white faces because they're the Mm -hmm. people that look like me. And I think that coming to terms just seems impossible because I think that just what these guys said is that we never thought about race. Well, now every time I look up and I see the president, I have to think about race, right? So it's a reminder about this tension between how you see yourself and what you know yourself to be. And I think that it's this sense that if you're a brown person, in this country, the narrative of your life is improving. It's going up, right? Like, you know, you're getting more, whether it's, it's, it might be horrible, right? You know, we can talk about things are horrible, but you're on a trajectory that things are ultimately moving towards something better. If you're white in this country, you don't know what that trajectory is. You're not on the same trajectory. And maybe it's a trajectory to something that's even, but that's not the same to say, well, actually, things are actually going to change for you. And I think that is disorienting. Can you think of another example of a presidential election, of a national election that animated this much anti-immigrant uh, sentiment, this, this idea that, that the fundamental character of America might be changing if, if things go, I'm doing air quotes here, the way, <laughs> if things keep going the way they're going? Yes. I mean, we saw it coming out of the end of the First World War. Mm -hmm. Um, You get the rise of uh, eugenics after that, in fact. And when you look at what became the 1924 National Origins Act... Um, What that did was it said, we've got too many of these little nasty immigrants around. I'm using air quotes. Um, (laughs) They're uh, fun. They're really fun. (laughs) Yeah, they're really fun. (laughs) And we have got to keep America pure. We have got to keep America safe. We have got to keep America white. And in doing that, what they did was they looked at what the census was in 1890 and said the percentage of People from that nation who were here then, that's the percentage that could come in. Well, the massive immigration from Eastern Europe and Southern Europe did not happen before 1890. It happened afterwards. And so you got this really disproportionate shift where um, Britain, for instance, had, could bring in like 75,000 uh, of its people could, could move here, mm-hmm. whereas Italy could only bring in about 4,000. Huh. Uh-huh. And all of this was about keeping America pure, and it seized the nation. And that 1924 National Origins Act, the Immigration Act, wasn't overturned until 1965. Okay, we said at the beginning of this conversation, we really wanted to look into the future and see what may happen. Uh, Carol, based on what you know about what happened in the past, where do you think we'll be four years from now? I think we're going to be stronger. And I think we're going to be stronger because of several factors. One is that what this election season has done is to, in fact, expose the need for a conversation about whiteness, about the way that whiteness works in ways that we really haven't had before. I also think that what it's going to do is remember after the 2012 election um, when um, 
Fox was calling the election for Ohio one way and was absolutely yes. stunned because there was this disjunction between the reality on the ground and what Fox was absolutely sure it was. And it was just this discombobulating moment where we're having a whole series of those. And I think it's in that moment where, you know, I've talked about being in a fact-free evidence echo chamber, that that echo chamber is going to shatter for some, hmm. when it becomes very clear that they have been fed a whole series of lies. And there's going to be this search for reality. So we're going to get a reconfiguration of what media looks like. I think in that search for reality, we're also going to get this much more vibrant, much more real, much more evidence-based conversation about race and I think when we really think through in this nation about how all of us can benefit from a quality education, from participating in democracy, from having a, a truly functioning uh, criminal justice system, then the nation itself is that much stronger. And that's where also some of this fear will begin to dissipate. I have to say, I'm surprised at your optimism. Considering I am, I too. Was too. I'm blown away by your optimism. <laughs> I was going to be four years from now. We're going right. to be, like, slightly better. Yeah. I mean, it seems like, from what you've been saying, is that, like, there is this pendulum that always swings back the other way, this, all, this already sort of, like, massive backlash to the perception of the progress of people of color. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. In the next four years, whatever happens on November 8th, we're going to have a white president, right? Um, yes. There's going to be, I mean, there will still be the mediated images of a more integrated world that might actually exist, but there will no longer be a, uh, a brown family in the White House. I'm, I'm just, I just, I just wanted to note that your optimism seems, uh, is surprising. That's all. And, uh, no, and I'm not a Pollyanna at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I teach war crimes and genocide, okay? <laughs> I am so not a Pollyanna. Whitney, you were surprised by Carol's optimism. Yeah, I just, you know, what did Winston Churchill say? Like, you know, America can always be counted on to do the right thing after it's uh, exhausted every other uh, <laughs> option. So I guess in that sense, I'm, I'm optimistic. Um, but, you know, I, what I would say is that one of the benefits of my work is I spend a lot of time traveling around the country and talking to people. And it sounds, I'm going to sound really corny right now, so give me a, so like, give me a pass, is that I talk to people from all different walks of life. I recently just did a project on veterans where I was talking to a lot of military people and military families. And what sort of catches me off guard is that most Americans share the same outlook on the world, like 95%, whether whatever color they are, background, and and you know you'll I, you know I, I met this guy. It was it was he was working building all these homeless structures in Kansas City, and he was going to the homeless camps and finding people and getting them shelter and and get, getting them uh, putting them to permanent houses and doing all this volunteer everything. And he had this big uh, tattoo of the Statue of Liberty on his arm. And I said, you know, why'd you get that? When'd you get that? And he turned to me and said. You know, I got that um, in defiance the day Obama was elected. And mm. it, like, totally caught me off guard. Here was a guy who sort of, like, had the same sort of outlook in so many things, but was fun to had this, like, tiny sliver of just, like, fundamentally opposition to the way that I sort of travel through the world. But Carol said something, something earlier, which I really do agree with, is that what we share, he and I, is this 
perhaps in its erroneous belief, but a belief in who we want to be. You know, not necessarily who we are, but who we want to be as a country. And I think that is like ultimately a powerful motivator for people to move forward. I mean, one of the things that's been interesting is think about us having this conversation three years ago. It really couldn't have happened in the way that we're having it now. That's true. I think that's true. I started doing this whiteness project five years ago. I got laughed out of like every foundation, every all my backers and funders <laughs> and everything. They were like, you are out of your when mind. When I heard the name, the whiteness project, I'm like, oh, what is this? Like a, a J. Crew sort of <laughs> charity event? Like what are no, we talking Abercrombie. about? Abercrombie. Hollister, actually. Hollister. The, um, but now, as I said, I got three calls from the press today about talking about whiteness and white race. It was, I really think that it is something that the country knows that it needs to grapple with and deal with yes. if it's going to move forward. Yes. I, I just wanted to say, it was funny, we thought about ending this by asking you two to tell a joke because we thought it was going to be so dark. <laughs> <laughs> but so here y'all go, all sunshine and light. and yeah. Like, but you ended on a positive note, so I guess we don't need to hear your corny yeah. jokes. And not even sunshine all. and light, just like, you know, there's slivers <laughs> of hope. Yes. Which is not where I thought you were going to go. No, I thought it was going to be really depressing. No, no, there, there, there is hope. I mean, you, you can't get as far as we have come as a nation without hope. Yeah. Carol Anderson and Whitney Dow, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Carol Anderson. She's a historian at Emory University and also the author of White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. And you heard Whitney Dow. He's a filmmaker and he created a project called The Whiteness Project. You can check out his work at www.whitenessproject.org. All right, y'all, that is our show for this week. We want to hear from you, as always. Email us at codeswitch at npr.org. Follow us on Twitter at NPR Codeswitch. And you should definitely, definitely subscribe to our podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found or streamed. Agreed. Mm-hmm. And a big thank you to NPR campaign reporter Sarah McCammon, who mm-hmm. kindly shared with us tape she gathered on the campaign trail. Thank, thank you, Thank you. Walter Ray Watson and Rund Abdel-Fattah produced this episode. Our editorial assistant is Leah Danella. And we had original music by Ramteen Arab Louie. Shouts to the rest of the Code Switch Collective. Adrian Florido, Karen Grigley Bates, Kat Chow. Our editors are Keith Woods and Allison McAdam. I'm Gene Demby. I'm Shereen Marisol Maraji. Be easy. Peace. <laughs>